Hi, this is Mike with Rogue Media Network. As Texas opens back up, some of our shows have chosen to continue to record from remote locations. Some of our other shows have started recording in studio with very few people observing social distancing. Thanks for listening and please be safe. This is Central Texas Living with Ann Harder. If you are in the market for a great summer read, may I suggest Waco novelist Margaret Ferguson's new book, The X. It's uh, book two, in fact, of the Rogue Warrior series. Um, now, Margaret, it's great to have you here. It's great to be here. With us to talk about your work. I love talking to writers um, because I'm just fascinated by the process and, and fascinated by you know the dedication that it, it takes to be a writer. Well, um, I've been doing it since I was 22 years old. So you kind of always known you wanted to, and I've was always it always known. fiction? Or are you a poet? Or I mean, what it's, kind of writing? I started with poetry when I was in junior high and uh, started writing my first novel when I was 18, but didn't finish it till I was 22. And so it's just kind of progressed from there. Well, how many books have you written now? Where are I've you? written five that have been published. I've got three that are written that need to be rewritten before I get them published. They've been, they're sitting in a box in a closet. <laughs> and 25 others that I want to write. 25? Yes. So let's talk about specifically the X and this uh, Rogue series. Um, what was kind of the emphasis? Are there certain characters that you're kind of weaving through? Is it over a time period? Or how, how did you figure all this? I would think you have to have an idea ahead of time. Um, I do. Um, actually, the way it started was it was supposed to be one standalone book and uh, with this one character, Eddie Rourke. And as it stands now, um, we're going to have 10 in this series. And uh, the way it started with the one character is um, I, um, when I was 22 years old, I had this dream. And in this dream, I had this particular um, setting in mind. And when I woke up, I was like, I need to make that into a book. And so I wrote it all down. And um, I saved it. And my mentor about five years ago, four years ago, um, had asked me or told me I needed to write a series. And I had some um, series in mind that were historical fiction. And so I pitched the three different um, things to him. And he's like, "Eh, I don't know about that. And so I pitched him the character of Eddie. And he loved the character. And he said, you need to write a series for this guy. So I did. Well, and he's uh, he's ex-military. He's ex-military. Yeah. Do you have a lot of military folks in your family? I mean, you seem to really have a great understanding of I what have, that life is like. Well, my um, my uncle and actually two of my uncles are military, ex-military. Um, but most of the information I got was from some of my um, uh, sources. I've got a couple of ex-military, one sniper, ex-army, another Texan Army, Texas Army National Guard, and then some local police that I visit with to make sure I get the technology, the terminology, everything correct. Yeah, the, there was a lot I noticed in the, the book, The X, there, you know, a lot of research that you had to have done um, because you reference uh, actual historic events that happened from the Branch Davidians to the Luby's Massacre in Killeen. I mean, those yes. are all stories that I covered back uh, back in my radio days. Yeah, when we worked together. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, we've known each other a very long time. Yes, we have. Uh, when you were at WACO, that was what, back in the... 80s. 80s and 90s. Early 90s, yes. Yeah, when, of course, these, these events were happening. Um, but but you drew on that for this 
kind of scenario? Do you want to set up a little bit without a lot of spoilers, you know, set up what your situation is in the X? In the situation I've created is um, Eddie is um, having lunch with an old flame. And while he's there, uh, two men come in and take the restaurant hostage. And um, they're... um, their goal is to make the VA pay attention to certain issues, especially of um, people that have dealt with Agent Orange from the Vietnam War. So it was kind of a, a noble, in a way, a yes. noble purpose, but yes. how they were going about it was how they're horrifying. Going about it, right, it's horrifying. And yet, um, so in some ways I show you what their thinking is in regards to why they're doing what they're doing, but in the end they're still taking hostages and harming people. Yeah, yeah, and they're demanding the media. And demanding the media. <laughs> to come in just like, oh man, the branch, you know, we want the media, the branch yep. Davidians, um, to, to tell their side of, exactly. of what was going on. And um, but, but I think what was really, uh, what was gripping to me was uh, the writing of the dialogue. You know, you to me, as I'm reading it, it's like watching a TV show. Have you ever thought about writing for the screen? Um, I actually, my um, second book, Letters from Becca, I actually turned into a screenplay and went to a screenwriting class and um, and haven't done anything with it since then. But yes, when I when I envision a book, it's a movie in my head. And um, it, it's on a continuous loop until it's on paper. And once it's on paper and on the shelf, then I move on to the next movie in my head. So, so it just sort of, in a way, haunts you until you get it. It does. And literally, I can jump to any book in any of any of my series or any of my standalone books that I haven't written yet, and I can tell you what's going to happen because it's just, it's just something that is in my head. <laughs> These characters I, are in there. I just said that to me, it's just fascinating. And, and uh, as you say, when you're, when you're writing the dialogue, I, I would just would guess it's just flowing because so-and-so is saying this, and then that one responds. And the characters drive a lot of the dialogue and I begin writing how I feel that they should speak or what they're going to say or their more their personality putting it into the dialogue and then they pretty much take over when I'm you know when I get on a roll they take over what genre would you kind of consider your writing to be I was uh, appreciative of that was some strong language but it was not f-bombs everywhere yes yes I don't I I am a Christian that's a writer and so I write edgy Christian Um, I don't write Amish fiction Um, uh, I have contemporary romance that are out there contemporary inspirational romance and then these are political and military thrillers Okay, well, well, then you do. I mean, there are, there's actually, you know, pigeonholes for these. So now let's talk about uh, the process. You, you are self-published. So how did that all happen for you? Um, again, I've wanted to write for all my life, and I owned my own catering business for 17 years. And um, when I sold it, um, I basically said, okay, God, what do I do now? And um, my husband um, is a very big supporter of mine, and he said, you've always wanted to write, so write. And so... My brother-in-law, who has been very successful in self-publishing, um, started two years before me. And so he and his wife helped me through the entire process. They helped me with the typesetting and the, the advertising and how to set up you know, my Facebook account and my, um, my website so that it would be more like an author's page. Well, and even the artwork. I mean, everything is very professional about... I use his artist. Um, mm-hmm. He's actually in Greece He's, he's fantastic, and he's done some phenomenal artwork on all of my books. I have a vision in my head of what I want it to look like, and I basically search out clip art 
um, or tell him what I want, and then I send it to him, and within a day, he gets me back what I what you see in front of you. So, so how is it marketed? Is it is this on Amazon or how do folks? It is, get it is your on books? Amazon. Um, I'm working at Barnes and working on Barnes and Noble. Um, it's in Amazon, um, on Kindle, and on um, paperback. And I also sell them when I do author events when I'm doing autograph signing. Um, but um, right now, those are exclusively where I'm marketing at. Yeah, of course, uh, public events aren't really happening <laughs> too often right. for, for anybody right now. Um, what advice do you have to someone who may be like yourself? Uh, you know, I'd always wanted to write. You know, what are the odds I can get an actual book out there? The odds now are a thousand times better than they were 25 years ago. Hmm. Because when I first started writing, I sent all of my material out to many um, publishers, mostly starting with query letters. And most of the query letters came back with rejection. And um, once the, and, and back then self-marketing, I'm sorry, self-publishing was looked at kind of down. It was like, you know, desperate people mm-hmm. self-published. Mm-hmm. And over the last 15 years, self-publishing has just exploded. And especially in the last, say, six or seven years. And now, um, there are publishers out there that are actually asking for people, you know, <laughs> to send them books because yeah. the self-publishing market is the majority of the market out there. The big five publishers aren't, you know, making what they were before. Uh, they can still do all the promotions and they can, they can bring more success and notoriety to a book than I can as a self-published author. However, to be able to be a self-published author, it's so much easier to do now. Than yeah, it was. I, was, I would think you have to give up a lot of... Uh... And a lot of control in, in a way, but would you consider going with a, a major publishing house? And then I how would, would you love, choose which one? I would love to go with a major <laughs> publishing house. I have um, been in contact with Entangled Publishing, which I think is under Random House, and um, they have uh, reviewed and rejected three of my five books, but they have given me great feedback and um, you know invited me to bring them back after I do some rewrites. Hmm. And um, and I have another publisher, the largest um, publisher of Native American um, books in the world, um, the Chickasaw Press. And, they, and you have a connection with I the... have a connection with them because I'm part Chickasaw. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been bugging Wiley Barnes, the publisher there, for the last four years. And um, he has told me that they are looking at possibly opening another imprint because originally they were nothing but uh, nonfiction. Um, and now, two years ago, they started doing hi- um, historical fiction. And so he's encouraged me to do in- historical fiction, and he's even approved um, a pitch that I made to him. But I can't really jump off of this series and start another one. I need to get this one rolling. Right. Um, Right and and Build you, my readership you've got and, the you've got the two books now. Right. Tell tell me a little bit. I you sent me the first book, but I went ahead and, and read the X yeah. first. Yeah. <laughs> so so what did I miss in the first book? In the first one, Eddie is left for dead in Afghanistan. Mm. He's on a mission. His chopper gets shot down, and he's the only survivor. Um, and he is rescued by a small Pashtun village. And um, anybody that is familiar with the peoples of Afghanistan will find that they are uh, basically a very kind uh, people. Um, And I got the story idea from my son, who was a missionary over there. And um, they gave me stories about the peoples and um, their faith and and just all of their 
circumstances um, while they were over there. And through them, I got to meet other people on their team, some that lived up in the mountains. And um, through many of her stories about, you know, drying clothes and having to leave them out for a week because they had to defrost, mm. you know, to dry, um, things like that, I would build into the, to the storyline. But basically, uh, in that small village is a missionary, and she's an American missionary. And so we have the conflict of having a missionary in a Muslim nation. And so you, you see both sides of it. You see his, his need to be over there and why he's over there and what his job is while he's over there. And he doesn't necessarily agree with why she's over there and doesn't understand why she would put herself in that situation. And so through that, I build the, the two characters that continue into the X. Mm-hmm, right. And so, so the third book is? Is um, still a work in progress. Mm-hmm. I, um, I'm still working on the final, the final draft of it. I have it about three-fourths of the way written. And this one will take place uh, more so in Mexico. Hmm. So, and the name of it, do you have a name yet? I have a name tentatively picked out. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I'm just waiting to, to confirm that right now. <laughs> Well, it, it was really, it was it was so much fun for me to read it. I th- thoroughly enjoyed it, as I say. I mean, the action uh, aspect, I was really kind of blown away by it. I was not expecting that you. from you. I think I was expecting, you know, a romance novel about right. an ex-boyfriend or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it was not anything like that. It was uh, so so many uh, references to, like I say, stories that I reported on. And uh, even the name of a good friend of ours, I, I told you, I just burst out laughing when a character named a Thrash show, shows up. And she, when you described her as a blonde bombshell, I, went, I know exactly <laughs> who you're. It was a co-worker of ours, and I just roared. So, so... <laughs> when you're, you, you got to name your characters, you know, you do draw on folks you, you know. I do. Um, some of the personalities of some of the characters, uh, she's very much um, an alpha female. Oh, yes. And so, um, <laughs> I, you know, when I was creating that character, I was like, that's her. So yeah. I went ahead and gave her, uh, gave that character's name, Thrash. Yeah. But um, I do, sometimes I'll pick uh, people that I know to kind of honor them in the books by yeah. giving a name in there. Odin Weller is another one. She's mm-hmm. a good friend of mine that lives out in Houston. But um, but once a character starts taking on a personality, sometimes I'll think of a friend that has go, a personality. Yeah. And if not, then I just make up a name. Yeah, go, get, go to the phone booth. <laughs> yeah, go to the phone booth, right. The phone book. Oh, well, it's been, it, it's been it's fun to, to talk to you and to hear, hear about this. And uh, before we go, I want to ask you some little questions sure. to get to know you a little better. Um, they're ones that were like the ones the late James Lipton used on his TV show Inside the Actors Studio. Did you love that I show? I love that All show. All right, so what is your favorite word, Miss Arthur? What is my favorite word? Um, faith. All right, your least favorite word? My least favorite word is a very bad cuss word. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's not say it then. <laughs> you use asterisks. You I've, did I've, use it and there were asterisks. Is uh, that the one I'm thinking? No, that's not the one. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> okay. What what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Um, a good cause. Somebody that I um, somebody that I know that really needs help. Um, I try not to be an enabler, but um, I, a, a really good cause is what turns me on, whether it's feeding the homeless or helping out um, somebody at church that you know, needs their lawn mowed or you know, groceries picked up or whatever. It's just that really, that really inspires me as a person. Yeah. What, what turns you off? What turns me off is people that lie. People that lie and when you know they're lying. Yeah. What what sound do you most love? 
The sound of my grandkids' voices. Yeah. <laughs> what sound do you hate? Myself going mm, over and over again. <laughs> the sound of my oh, own those, voice. <laughs> those, those, little, those little crutches. What other profession would you like to try? You've been a caterer. you obviously a writer. I've done so many professions that I really enjoyed. I enjoyed the radio station. Um, I can't think of another one that I would really like to try. I thought for a long time I'd want to be a teacher, but after homeschooling my grandson for the last <laughs> few weeks, it's it's fun, but I don't think I'd want to do it. <laughs> well, maybe that, that answers my next <clears throat> yeah. question. What job do you know you wouldn't yeah. enjoy? Right. Uh, all right. And, and finally, what do you want to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Um, well done, my good and faithful servant. Yeah, scriptural. 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 So how can folks, um, again, get a copy of The X? Maybe they'd like to read both in this uh, soon-to-be trilogy. The, the name of the first book is? The Missionary. The Missionary. Okay. So uh, how, how can they get those, Margaret? They can go to Amazon, um, or they can go to my website, which is margaretfergusonbooks.com. And um, I also have a Facebook page. They could go there. Somebody could message me. I always try to message back. Um, but uh, that's... Amazon is Amazon is the main thing. They could also go to the Waco Public Library because all of my books are in the Waco Public Library. They're also in the Hewitt Public Library. And good, good. Is it like a local authors section or yes, they put it in a local authors section. That's good. Well, yes. I I'm delighted to have a local author here on the podcast. Thank appreciate you, for having you me. taking some time to be with us, Margaret. Well, I really appreciate you. You're a great <laughs> lady, and I just it's an honor to be here. Oh, thanks, Margaret. What's the one thing people always say they wish they still had after a disaster or fire? Photographs. Revision Photo Restoration is dedicated to helping preserve and restore your memories. Take advantage of this extra time you have at home to go through those old boxes of photos. If you're feeling overwhelmed by the process, follow them on Pinterest for organizational tips and tricks for old photos. They have on-site fire and weatherproof storage facilities to ensure the safety of your images, so you don't have to ship off all your memories to a larger company. Revision can handle everything from slides and negatives to film and prints. Revision Photo Restoration is local to Waco and located at 2001 Franklin Avenue. Call 254-297-9754 for an appointment or instructions on how to send in files digitally. Revision Photo Restoration. Check them out on Instagram at Revision Photo. years, CareNet Pregnancy Center has provided compassionate care for women who find themselves in crisis due to pregnancy. And for 14 years, Deborah McGregor has served as executive director. I know you consider that work a calling. 
I do. I do. I didn't at first. I think I didn't know what I was doing there. I just answered a, a call, an ad. But I look back and go, yeah, God really did prepare me for this. Um, I, I made a, a, a comment yesterday on uh, one of our Facebook pages that uh, we had taken a mobile outreach out to Marlin. And 35 years ago, almost on the very same spot, was where I was involved in the first pro-life rally, if you would. Um, and I had just learned about what abortion was. A friend of mine showed me a picture, and I went, oh, that that can't be right. And uh, some church ladies had asked me to be the Baptist women's president or something, which was so funny because I never even prayed out loud. So I was like, okay, well, I'm supposed to pray for missionaries around the world. And then all of a sudden, I saw that what was happening in our own city, in our own country, and I went, why don't we do something about that? And so anyway, it was funny, It was, but it was 35 years ago, and so I just kind of reflected on that and thought, who would have thought that all the open doors that I've gone through, and that's kind of the way I am, I joke about that I don't have, that I don't, I don't set goals, I just look to see what's close, and then think, well, you know, that probably won't kill me, and I'll try that. And so just going through law school and, you know, education and practice and all of that, and then my heart being broken about this issue that just kind of come full circle. So it was really sweet. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, yeah, you, by, by training, you're an attorney. Yes. Um, how, how has that kind of figured in to what you do? I know you obviously you have a passion for, for helping women in crisis pregnancies. Well, I think, um, I mean, God made me an advocate. So, um, and, you know, when you couple that with just your heart be, being broken for, for me particularly, it has been for, um, I used to joke with, with even, you know, other attorneys to say, look, if it's a child or an older person, like, that's it, I will take you down. Like that, you know, I, I am an advocate for children and for the elderly. And I just found myself, um, really, that's where my passion lies most. And I think that's for those that can't speak for themselves, or that don't have the confidence to speak for themselves. And then, you know, especially in this work, I have met so many influential people that have such a good heart, but they don't have a place to work out that uh, burden. And so to be able to lend the influence that I have with other people and in other areas to those people that don't have any influence is just such a privilege. Well, and I know uh, involved with what, what you do is education, trying to you know, let a woman know, you know, that maybe there's another option besides right. abortion for mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for some, I mean, they, they feel like they're in a hopeless situation. Um, so so walk us through what what do you do to help a woman that contacts you? Well, for example, generally the entry point for someone that's never heard of us or maybe that was referred to us and is afraid she's pregnant, that's kind of where, you know, I mean, you would feel like we serve every pregnant woman in Waco because we see about 2,500 a year. But uh, half of all pregnancies statistically and have been for years are unplanned. That doesn't mean they're all unwanted. Uh, but for those women and families who feel like they just can't, uh, the, the timing's bad, someone's lost a job, they have other children they feel like they have to sacrifice. I mean, the first thing that we can do is to slow them down and say, okay, this decision does not have to be made today. Uh, and so they will call, we'll invite them in, we do a pregnancy test, we tell them how far along they are. Uh, also, you know, March of Dimes says three out of four pregnancies, or I'm sorry, one in four pregnancies may end in miscarriage on its own. And so we don't want them paying for an abortion that, that may not have been a viable pregnancy. So that's one of the first thing we do is to say, okay, are you pregnant? How far along are you? Uh, if you're considering abortion, what kind of procedure, given how far along you are, would you be looking at? Uh, what would the cost of that be? And then let's take a look and see if it's even a viable pregnancy. Uh, and then, you know, after that, just giving them that factual information 
so that they can just kind of slow down a minute and and think about it. And especially if someone is maybe, I mean, I'm going to say pressuring them to abort. Sometimes it may not feel like pressure. I mean, like, for example, father of the baby may say, this is what we hear a lot, well, I'll support whatever she does. Um, but oftentimes what she wants to hear is, I'll be there. And so they don't know. You know, the guy thinks, well, I'm being supportive. And he may not know that but what she wants to hear is that you're going you're gonna to go the distance with her, uh, regardless of the relationship. And even with parents, parents oftentimes the same way. Um, and so for us to be able to counsel with them and say, you know, before this happened, how did you feel about abortion or how did you feel about adoption? And oftentimes they'll say, oh, well, I, you know, I think it's wrong. I don't think so. And so we can just kind of work with them through that and, and gently, you know, ask, might you return to that position once this crisis is over? And then would that be something that would torment you? And if so, might we explore another option? But it's always very gentle, very permission driven. Uh, we don't, um, you know, we will share fetal development. We'll share how far along they are. Uh, but it's, it's just, again, all permission driven. And then if we can just get her to stop and think about rather than, I mean, because when a woman's in that situation, she doesn't necessarily identify with it being a pregnancy. She identifies it with it being a problem. Mm -hmm. And so if she can just stop and think, because, you know, I mean, I'm a Christian and we're a Christian agency and we know how the enemy works. I mean, the minute that problem is solved, then will become the accusation. I can't believe you did this in her mind. I can't believe you did this. You didn't protect your child. Even for men. I mean, there's now a lot of research out there on men who have been in, uh, involved in abortions and it has affected their ability to parent future children because they always have this underlying guilt that they weren't able to protect their child. And um, so, again, gently, we discuss those almost always through a question format. You know, do you think, might this happen? Um, and so once she makes her decision, and sometimes she has to come back several times to even kind of talk through that, if she decides for abortion, then most often she's, we're the only ones that know. Uh, she may be going someplace, and so she doesn't have anybody necessarily checking on her afterwards. Uh, we have called women several times that were hemorrhaging that were afraid to go to the hospital, uh, didn't even know if a hospital would take them. They were afraid that their parents' insurance would find out. And so we were able to talk to them and get them to a hospital. I've even gone myself uh, with a woman who had had an incomplete abortion and um, to be there as a support for her. Uh, and then also um, if a woman decides that, you know, adoption is not off the table, unfortunately, many women and men equate adoption with foster care. And not that foster care is bad now, but there has been a time 20 years ago, uh, say, that and many of these people were raised in foster care, that they won't consider adoption because in their mind, it's foster care. And so, you know, I have heard several women tell me, I am the way I am because of foster care. And, and you know, you can take that to mean, you know, I have a drug addiction, I have an alcohol addiction. I We have one client who had completely lost her hearing because she had been beaten so much. So... A lot of times, you know, we have to educate them. If they will let us on adoption, generally adoption is maybe a third trimester decision. She's decided not to have an abortion. Then she's considering parenting. And then she may look at the real picture and go, you know, this is not going to be best for me or my family. Or or maybe she just may not feel like that she's bonded to that baby. Um, one of our clients just most recently placed her child for adoption. And she said, you know, I just realized it wasn't mine. I mean, I, I don't feel like this baby is mine. I feel like I had this baby for somebody else. And so 
Uh, she's involved in an open adoption and really sweet story. So yeah, there are more there are more of those kind of things happening where right. it's kind of almost co-parenting, sort of in a way. Absolutely, where the birth mother is very involved with with the child or is, is involved as mm-hmm. she wants to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that the culture is changing, mm-hmm. uh, but for like I said, for initially, it's just to slow her down so that she can see that we care about her, that we're going to be honest, um, we're not going to sugarcoat anything, but that she knows we're there for her. We can almost always find somebody that's been in her situation. And then if she will continue to take parenting classes, uh, even if she's not going to parent, but to the life skills and the prenatal care, then she meets other women and men, because men are invited to our classes too, that are in the same situation. And it's not always, I mean, yes, probably 80% of our clients uh, would be considered in poverty or impoverished situations, but even college kids are in poverty. Uh, and so it's funny, you know, the ground is pretty level at CareNet. It's like, it didn't really matter how you got here. Uh, you're all in the same boat. And um, so they learn together. Then they learn, they meet other people that once the baby's here and, you know, they have new friends that they can call on to babysit. I mean, this... It becomes a support group. Absolutely. And I mean, system for them. I, I see even in my own children, I mean, this generation is not as trusting probably as I was when, I mean, when I was a young mom. It's like, you'll take my kids, I can drop them off, see ya. <laughs> you know, I mean, they don't do that anymore. It's no. play dates. And we didn't have play dates. It was, no, who's going to keep my kids? Uh, and so they meet other families that they trust. And that just, yeah, I mean, I say that all the time. I'm like, you know, if we had 20 women come through here a year, that 20 wise women, I mean, you could change your community. Yeah, I, I've always I've always believed the abortion issue would be would be solved if the hearts of women were, were changed. Yeah. And and that's what you're helping to facilitate with, through education. And, and um, the young woman will leave with more than with tools. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's part of what you're. It's always what we want to do is that they leave better than they got. Yeah. They well, now this uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so how has that affected the, the care that you can give? Are you doing ultrasounds? Are you able to do those kind of we are medical exams and such well the way we did we had to pivot just like everyone else so i call it the day the world blew up you know the day the world blew up we kind of stopped uh and said okay what can we do um to several different things we had basically three issues to deal with one how do we continue offering medical services especially because of you know we didn't know how infectious this this uh, virus was and so uh the way we pivoted there is we were giving pregnancy tests. We were doing self-tests. And so we would hand, kind of curbside. A woman would call. She would come. We would give her the test with instructions. Then she would call us back and tell us if that test was positive or negative. If it was negative, we would continue to give STD vouchers to the health department that we pay for testing and treatment. And, you know, say, congratulations, high five. Don't do that again. <laughs> stop stop doing that. Uh, that. That's my version. They're probably a lot gentler than that. But my version is just stop it. You know, you have a clean slate. Yeah. Then the other is if their test was positive, then we gave them, like we normally do, we gave them prenatal vitamins. We set up either an ultrasound with ourselves or with a physician that would get her in right away. Um, we uh, gave her... Um, you know, kind of a starter kit. We, a lot of times we like to give them like a little onesie or something just to connect that it's a baby. Mm-hmm. Even if it was a problem, it's now a baby. I mean, yeah. they're a baby. Uh, and then we immediately invited them to start attending our Zoom classes. So in our support center, that was, you know, we have 20, 30 people a day in classes that are earning incentives and then they get baby beds and car seats and all that. But we had to, in the support center, we had to pivot there. We didn't have any idea 
at first, I mean, all of us are sick of Zoom. I know. I mean, it's a, it's a love-hate relationship with Zoom. But we thought, how many clients are going to actually do a Zoom call? We've been amazed. I mean, and I guess because the schools were requiring that for the children, uh, we'll have 20 or 30 on a Zoom call that are learning just like they would have in class. Uh, they earn points. They can come and shop in the boutique on an appointment basis. So, again, you know, social distancing, limiting that. And then we also, because we knew that, you know, we always promised that if you have this baby, I mean, we're going to be there with you. We knew that we had clients out there that maybe they'd had their babies, but that that had lost jobs and stuff. So we uh, had enough staff because we were all working at home at first for the first two weeks other than those in the office. We called every client that we had had that had had a positive pregnancy test for the past three years and asked them, how are you? How is this affecting you? Can we have someone pray for you? And is there anything that you need? And so we started the curbside and within, well, the first two or three weeks, we served over 400 that came and 120 of those, I think, were even new because they would tell somebody that would call. So we just really wanted them to know. We wanted to give them the material assistance. We wanted to give them things. And that's that, like diapers and formula diapers, and wipes. wipes formula, yeah. uh, you know, baby lotions, soaps, things that they can't buy with their food stamps. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also to be able to offer the prayer support as well uh, and to invite them, you know, if you need something else. And, and they know as long as we have it, we're going to give it. I mean, we're nonprofit in every sense of the word. We end the end of the year with no money. Right. You give it all <laughs> away. You do. And folks are generous with you, though. And, and But you could use some donations, I well, would think. <laughs> absolutely. So this past week, um, and we will do this again probably in a couple of weeks, we've taken our mobile unit which is a fabulous rv it's a beautiful yeah, we beautiful. call her bertha we call her bertha <laughs> but b-i-r-t-h-a there, bertha. I, got it, I got it anyway so we decided you know let's just take this out into the surrounding communities because people don't have the money for gas i mean we can have stuff all day long but they don't have the money to get right. there right. and so we had because the the community was so generous we had the uh the stuff to take and we had staff and then some volunteers are starting to come back and so we just kind of did a, a maiden voyage this week and said, there again, that's one of those, what well, probably won't kill us to do it once. Let's try it. So, yeah. Let's try it. So we went to Marlin on Monday. We went to Hillsboro. We went to Gatesville today. Uh, we went to one other place, Grosbeck. Grosbeck, yeah. You yeah. A lot so, of folks at Grosbeck. Yeah. So I think we've already served over 150 people. And these are people that need some diapers. I mean, yeah. they need <laughs> formula. Right. I mean, uh, and not only, I mean, virus notwithstanding, kids still need diapers and, and women still get pregnant. I mean, it's exactly. And I mean, you're a limit, you're limited even with us. I mean, it's been, we've had people that have given money and then we've also had people that have just dropped stuff at the door because you're limited into how much you can buy. Right. Even parents, if they, oh, have, yes. if they have two or three children, they can't buy three cans of Similac mm. because they're limited. Um, and so we were able to go and just alleviate that again, took a prayer team with us if they wanted prayer. And, um, you know, Monday I went and just the hollowed, the best way I can describe it is just people would come and they just kind of had this hollowed look in their face. Like one, they were probably shocked, like, what are they doing here? Mm -hmm. But the other was like, you ask them, how can I pray for you? And they just go, I just don't know. Like, I, I don't know where to start. I don't know. I'm lost. Uh, and so people don't know, like, they don't know they don't know what's going to happen or when is life going to go back to normal. And um, there's a lot of people out there that I mean, maybe you or me or different people, you know, we have jobs, but those day laborers and, and people that work in restaurants and that really have to scrap and scrape, they really don't know how they're going to survive. So it is a desperate need really mm-hmm. for a lot of folks and you're helping yeah. to 
helping to uh, alleviate that. How can folks donate if they want to help? They can go to pregnancycare.org slash support, and you can give either by credit card. You can give uh, ACH, which is your checking account. You can do PayPal. Also, there's several Facebook uh, donation links that you can donate on. Or if you're at the grocery store and you see Similac, Similac Advanced, that's the most popular formula. Diapers, size four, five, and six are the most popular diapers because they don't go as, they don't last as long. I mean, there are not many as many in a package. Uh, if you see baby shampoos, if you, wipes, wipes are a big thing uh, because, I mean, you can't even get toilet paper. You sure can't. Baby mm. wipes. People are buying baby wipes for hand sanitizer, you know. So if you can see those things, just every time you go to the store, get that stuff, you can take it to CareNet, 8th and Waco Drive, drop it off at either door. We would love to have your name and address just so we can thank you. Uh, but those things would be, I mean, I'm going today after I leave this show to buy all of that stuff because we're, you know, we're running out every day, but we have it, but, but it's only because people are bringing it. Mm. Yeah. Well, you, you do have a lot of support and it's great to, to hear that. Um, Deborah, your passion for helping folks is palpable. And I thank, thank you. you so much for being with us today thank to you. talk about this. Well, it's just the joy of my life. I mean, it really is just the joy of my life to be able to do it and to be, to do it with so many people, so many people. We couldn't do it. I wouldn't want to do it by myself. Well, you're not alone. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Central Texas Living is part of the Rogue Media Network family. Be sure to check out their other shows at roguemedianetwork.com. Please rate us five stars on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Join us again soon for more Central Texas Living, the podcast. This has been Rogue Media Network Podcast.